Hello everyone, my name is Anas Al-Sabag and this is Something About Everything and with me here today is Dr. Gaida Hassan, a clinical psychologist and professor at the University de Quebec à Montréal, the UNESCO Chair on the Prevention of Radicalization and Violent Extremism. She is also the co-chair of a committee just started by the Canadian government called the National Expert Committee on Countering Radicalization to Violence. Today we are going to be talking about radicalization and the different psychological constructs and environments that lead to such behavior. Uh, first off, thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Hassan. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Um, I want to start off by asking you to tell me more about your experience and areas of expertise. Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm trained in uh, child and family work and uh My areas of, uh, of specialization of work have always been related to violence, uh, starting with family violence, interpersonal violence, and uh, gender-based violence, to uh, more uh, massive forms of violence such as war, such as uh, you know armed conflict. So I also work a lot with vulnerable immigrant and refugee populations in terms of helping them overcome the trauma and uh, and better integrate into society. And this is a bit where um, my work on violent radicalization comes from. Not that it's related to immigration or uh, refugee populations at all. And this is a myth that we have to bust right up front. But because of my work on violence and, you know, conflict related, uh, related to, to mass violence. It's interesting. Uh, this might be a bit of a personal question, but what uh, intrigued you or motivated you to seek uh, this specific speciality, like as in violence and family violence and domestic violence? Uh, well, I've always been intrigued <laughs> by what causes violence, and I've always wanted to stop it or contribute to the uh, to the end of violence. Uh, I think on a more personal level, because you asked a personal question as well, uh, I have myself experienced 18 years of civil war. Um, so I'm an immigrant, actually, to Canada. I think, uh, of course, in some ways, my personal history has motivated me to, to become somebody who tries to reduce uh, violence in our society, but also the impact of violence on individuals. Mm. Uh, that's really interesting, which actually ties into my next question. Uh, what are some of your research findings relating to radicalization and similar topics? Or like, just give me a highlight of some of the interesting facts from your research on uh, different topics. So there are a lot. Uh, it's like an ocean of, of <laughs> information. It really depends how you how you want to focus this on and, and, and what you want to focus this on. But I think one of the main areas of research is around misunderstandings that people have around radicalization or violent radicalization. So and the misunderstanding is also a lot related to misinformation Um Because certain media, for instance, or certain online spaces provide very wrong and very stigmatizing information on what radicalization is and what violent radicalization is and what can be the causes and the treatment. So this is one of the most important areas where work has to be done in terms of better informing uh, the people, uh, informing them that radicalization as such 
is not a problem. Uh, just being radical means believing in a cause and wanting to advance that cause in society. But the problem comes when violence becomes the only um, efficient or acceptable mean to achieve that cause. And this is when we talk about violent radicalization. Um, another important area is the confusion that people have between violent radicalization and terrorism. And they are two different things. Um, and they can be very distinct in many ways. Uh, other areas of research also show, for example, the complex interplay between social factors, political factors, economic factors, family, and then individual factors that make trajectories into violent radicalization. But the fact that there is no profile, right? So you cannot like detect those characteristics of somebody who will become, it's really like a life trajectory and that we have to look at how the risk and the protective factors evolve as the person experiences social or personal crises that may push them to harm themselves or others. Because even in radicalization, you have violent radicalized groups, or sometimes we refer to as well as extremism, but you also have individuals who may act or appear to have acted on their own that we you know, more commonly may call lone actors. And most often these are some of the events that have happened in Canada, for instance, in Toronto or in Quebec City, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and there's also a lot of research around intervention and around, uh, around prevention and around treatment. And there is very interesting data available on the influence of the online space. So we know today that a lot of people have very complex lives on the online space. And we discover that actually exposure to certain contents online may increase risk, uh, either for being just like affected, kind of, kind of uh, emotionally very affected by the content that we see, or literally being recruited and influenced into doing something harmful for oneself and for the others. Uh, yeah, I want to touch on the online aspect more later on in the interview. But for now, you mentioned misinformation and confusion. What is the biggest myth or what's the common myth that you hear and you really want to debunk? Uh, so there are, let's say, three huge myths that needs to be debunked. The first myth that has to be debunked is the thought that violent radicalization and terrorism are the same thing. They're not. The second myth that is very important is that today in most of Canadian societies and actually most of societies, Western societies, when you talk about violent radicalization or extremism, people immediately think about Islamist violent radicalization. Even so, when you talk about terrorism, people immediately will think about you know, Al-Qaeda, Daesh, and all these groups. Um, and that does not mean that they are not violently radicalized groups, but they are completely misinformed about the fact that currently in Canada, the biggest threat to violent acting out on daily basis comes from right-wing violent extremist groups, such as homophobic, neo-Nazi, xenophob uh, groups, misogynist groups, groups that um, that call for hatred 
against other individuals based on their racial or ethnic or religious or gender orientation. These groups are very uh, numerous in Canada, and although they may not do a huge spectacular event, they on daily basis do a lot or, or many violent uh, actions, be it verbal violence or physical violence against individuals. So what these groups do actually is that they polarize the social space, meaning that they increase the conflicts uh, between individuals. And I think this is, this is something that media has not enough covered. They're starting in Canada to cover it. I mean, just a simple fact, a statistics show that a violent uh, act that has been committed by somebody who relates to an extremist religious group, so let's say an Islamist group, are 400% more likely to be covered by media, 400% more times than an event that has been committed, let's say, by a white supremacist group. So this is a major bias, and this is like, um, uh, in French we say, deux poids, deux mesures, I'm sorry, which means it's like unequitable un, un treatment of information uh, that kind of biases the perception of people. So this is a myth that needs to be debunked. It's very important. And I think we are more and more talking about it. And I think the third myth that kind of needs to be kind of debunked is the fact that there's like a prototype of the, of the violent radicalized individual and that, that actually de-radicalization programs, uh, then you put them into a de-radicalization program and that works, whereas data shows us that de-radicalization program are actually programs that have very high failure rate and are very stigmatizing because often they focus on one group only. And I think we are more moving now into like a whole society approach. So people that need to be reintegrated and, and assisted in the, in the areas of risks or vulnerabilities that they have. Can you elaborate more on the de-radicalization programs and what the difference is between them and between the committee that you are a co-chair on? So the committee is uh, an advisory committee. So it, it is not a program. It is really a committee composed of uh, different experts. And then, you, you know, you can see that on, on the website also. It is composed of different experts from different sectors that we, we are here to think about the issue, to set important priorities in terms of policy, in terms of prevention, in terms of research planning and intervention to provide a kind of whole society efficient response uh, that is to the phenomenon that is also a non-stigmatizing response. De-radicalization programs actually don't really exist in Canada. They have kind of mostly existed in, in other settings and Canada became to know about these programs. Some maybe small initiatives have existed, but these programs were developed in other settings, let's say, so de-radicalization program focus on changing the ideology, making somebody reject the ideologies that they used to have and adopt, you know, a kind of new way of thinking. And they have failed for many reasons. First of all, because uh, surpri not surprisingly, actually, because this is a very um, stigmatization prone phenomenon, most Violently radicalized people from, let's say, religiously inspired radicalization have been put into de-radicalization programs 
Whereas people from, let's say, extreme right wing or violent right wing have put into disengagement programs, which are programs that focus on disengaging them from the violence, but not necessarily from the ideology. And this is a huge political and ideological bias in the way we intervene with individuals because it sends the message that some extreme ideologies are bad and others are good. So that is one reason why de-radicalization program doesn't work. Other reasons why de-radicalization program don't work is that it takes a whole lot of time and energy to spend your time trying to change the way somebody thinks. It is their theory of the world. Uh, it is the, how they perceive how the world they're structured and how their life is structured. But however, if you focus on assisting that person in finding their right place in society, assisting them in any mental health issues that they may have, in finding a job, in constructing a social network if they are excluded and isolated, in uh, increasing levels of empathy, then you probably will help significantly reduce not only the violent potential, but also the importance of the ideology. So programs that actually work are programs that, like ideology can be the, I always say it's like the eggs in a cake. It would gives a sense of meaning to all the other sufferings that the person is experiencing. And finally, it gives them like a purpose and a sense of direction. But if you reduce the causes of suffering, the social, the economic, and the interpersonal causes of suffering, then you don't need that ideology anymore. And the person kind of steps away from the idea of, of violently justifying or violently fighting for, for a cause. So programs that work are really programs that are multi-sectoral, that are focused on reintegration or rehabilitation in certain circumstances, and on reducing and managing the, the suffering and any potentially related mental health issues uh, that can push the individual you know, to suffer from significant mental health problems that may push them to act out in a desperate way, you know, in a violent, desperate way. Mm. To summarize what you said, basically, that the program is intended to change the means by which uh, those individuals would want to express those ideologies. That's one thing. And the second thing is changing their circumstances that make them so entrenched and uh, so deeply involved in that ideology, right? Yes, right. And in a way, there are several initiatives that exist already in Canada or that will be implemented shortly that try to establish this kind of multi-sectoral collaboration between employment, housing, education, mental health, and security sectors to try to answer to those individuals' needs the way you have framed it very well. Okay, perfect. From a psychological perspective, what do you think are the most common causes for a person to reach a state of radicalism? or more towards uh, acting violently uh, upon their ideology? Um, so there are no causes as such, right? So it's not like one A leads to B kind of uh, framework, but there are psychological or psychosocial risk factors. Some of the important risk factors pertain to, uh, so I'll, I'll state some that are Psychosocial. So we know that there are economic and, you know, a political and other type of risk factors. So some of the psychosocial factors are uh, a history of interpersonal violence. 
So somebody who has been exposed to, let's say, family violence or interpersonal violence, bullying at school, rejection, you know, being not being able to have a good social network. So a history of interpersonal violence, a history of ostracization or discrimination or racism can increase risk, including also a combination of, let's say, some kind of identity crisis mixed, however, with depressive uh, symptoms, anxiety, severe anxiety symptoms, or other more, let's say, uh, kind of serious mental health disorders, such as psychotic, for instance, mental health disorders. Now, it's important, I, I want to say that, but I'm saying it carefully because People should understand that we should not stigmatize here. It doesn't mean that if somebody has mental health issues that they will become violent. This is not at all the case. What I'm trying to say is that if you have a person who suffers from significant mental health difficulties, in addition to a set of social, interpersonal, economic, and professional uh, risk factors, then it may make them more vulnerable to act upon a kind of desperation. So what you will find, for instance, in what we call lone actors, let's say, take, for example, school shooters or other shooters in, in Canada, is this, this kind of profile of, of social risk, high, you know, social isolation, uh, failure in certain projects. So, you know, no, no, no job or no ability to succeed. In, in a given project that they have, uh, very weak social support networks, uh, some mental health issues, and then you add on it a layer of despair, and then you add on this layer of despair rage or feelings of significant anger with a kind of this fluid interrelation sometimes between societal and homicidal tendencies, and then you get a very vulnerable individual. Now, that does not mean still that that individual will act upon the violence. When it will happen is when then they come across an opportunity and means to do that. And this is why we talk about the dangers of the online space, because sometimes these individuals unfortunately find on the online space other individuals who will provide them with the motivation who will give them ideas of how to do things and may even help them in finding the practical means in going about that project. So what I'm trying to say is that we all need to look at it in a dynamic uh, and a trajectory perspective. It doesn't happen just like that in a, in a, you know, a click of a finger. It's something that is, that evolves across time in a, more slow or more rapid rate, it depends. But, you know, studies, statistics have shown that there is, I mean, in approximately 60% of situations, an issue relating to uh, significant mental health suffering. It's interesting you brought up the online space because that uh, directly ties into my next question, which is uh, about uh, social media and the role that it plays in uh, violent radicalization. Uh, so I read the report that you co-authored for the UNESCO titled Youth and Violent Extremism on Social Media, and it basically highlighted what you just said, that social media c- 
constitutes a facilitating environment rather than a driving force for violent radicalization. So an individual basically has to be vulnerable first, and then social media or connections to someone that gives them the means and the way to uh, committing that violent act is what really drives them to that violent radicalization spectrum. But then I want to understand why is social media having this unique impact? So I, I don't think it is. It, it is a unique impact in and by itself because we may find the same impact if somebody is in touch with actually like a violent extremist group where real individuals in their life. I, however, think it has this impact. It also has a very positive, massive impact of, you know, Social media is not all bad, right? So it can become a tool of extreme resiliency and, you know, citizenship participation and, and, uh, and helping each other in times of natural crises or in times of personal crises. The downside of social media, of course, is that its influence is, is both individual and collective. Previously, we used to think that an individual's life on the internet, on, on the cyberspace, is not related to their personal life, uh, let's say, to their personal physical life in the offline space. And studies are increasingly actually showing that the online space and the offline space are actually more connected than we think. So cognitively and emotionally, we relate very strongly to images and sounds on social media, just the same way we would relate in, in real life. So, and, and in terms of identity, we even, I mean, some authors refer even to, to the concept of de-individuated identity, referring to the fact that the identity that we put on, on social media and on the internet space actually influences our identity offline and what happens offline influences our life online. The second big influence of social media is that actually vulnerable people who already have difficulties in establishing real interpersonal relationships with individuals in their school or in their work environment may find it much more easy to establish relationships on social media. And recruiters or people who have, let's say, negative intentions can very easily enter into the intimate space of individuals online. This is also refers to a concept that we call extimacy in opposition to intimacy. And this concept refers to the fact that people are actually willing to say online very intimate things that they may not even tell their mothers or their brothers or their best friends, which actually make us very vulnerable really online because people can have access, you know, badly intended people can have access to a lot of information about us, including our vulnerabilities, and then learn gradually how to enter in contact with us in order to influence us. The other major issue with online space is that vulnerable individuals tend to spend a lot of hours on the online space that a lot of, let's say, negative, violent content is available out there on the online space. And people are exposed to these contents, or they may be active seekers who go seek seeing those contents. And they are just being 
cognitively, emotionally, and relationally influenced by this content, watching it over and over, and it's starting to alternate their way of thinking, and it may even alter the way that they see the world, that they see the real world. And then they are not connecting with real-world individuals that can come and challenge these perceptions. And the fourth major problem with the online space is that just as online you can create groups of between individuals like social groups who are groups of solidarity and help, you actually can create groups, especially in what we call the back web or the dark web, that are actually groups that are perceived by the individuals who is joining them as groups of solidarity because they're like brotherhoods, you know, but they are brotherhoods discussing very extremist and violent issues and, and you know, kind of drawing the individuals into that. So these are just a few <laughs> of the examples of how the online space may become an issue. And this is why one of the recommendations that we give to practitioners is, and to parents and to friends, and teachers and anybody who's listening to us is be interested by the online life of the people you care for, because especially if they are isolated people, and if you know that they're vulnerable people, uh, be interested, try to get to know what is happening for them online, because who knows, you know, you may, you may be able to prevent something from happening. So touching on that very same point, is it common for like families or communities to be able to see some sort of sign or symptom on an individual heading on that path? Actually, this is a very interesting question because although when something happens, we may say, uh, oh my God, I didn't see it coming. I never thought that person would do this. Studies actually show us, and, and I have, you know, colleagues that, uh, that would, uh, would concur with that a lot, such as, for example, colleagues from the Vitra training or, you know, other, other colleagues that provide training in this domain. Oftentimes, somebody knew something was going to happen in the environment of the person. They might not have known exactly what was going to happen, but when you look around, oftentimes somebody felt either felt that something was going seriously wrong, that that person has significantly changed, or they actually heard the person, you know, heard the person saying that they, they want to do things or they might do things or they will do things. But oftentimes, those people in the surrounding of the individual either did not know how to reach for help or were scared of stigmatization or were even scared of the person. So they were scared to report because they might not have wanted to suffer any negative consequences from seeking help. But I think the major barrier to accessing help is not knowing where to go, where to seek help, and then being afraid of the negative consequences of seeking help, either because, you know, you're afraid that you'd report to the police and then, you know, the person will be detained or, you know, security services will, will do uh, traumatizing interventions, or you may be scared that the person will be stigmatized at school. So there are essential barriers to seeking help. But this point you've said is really important because it is not true that nobody saw it coming. I think I understand why there might be this hesitation to report all those individuals to the 
authorities because in some cases they were mishandled as individuals where they were manipulated into committing crimes under sting operations and then being tried for committing those crimes. But then there are also instances where the authorities did reach out to the correct people and handled the situation in a good way. Can people in the community help those individuals? What are direct things that we can do here in Canada? Yeah, so I agree with you. There has been, let's say, very stigmatizing or traumatizing things that have that have happened in the security sector. There are, however, some good things that happen also. And I think it's important to have this balanced issue. But I do understand that communities or minorities, especially, who are kind of over-targeted and sometimes wrongly targeted for these issues. And I'm, you know, practically thinking here about the Muslim communities in Canada who, who are, may experience themselves and have been and may continue to be significantly targeted, whereas we are neglecting other bigger problems in, in other communities that may have kind of also kind of violently radicalized content, or we're also neglecting the needs of the communities in terms of discrimination and, and reintegration. I think right now in Canada, and this is one of the roles of the expert committee, is to strengthen the capacities of uh, grassroots organizations, of communities, of schools, of housing, of employment sectors, and also of social services and mental health services at the community levels to be able to respond and to support those individuals that are at risk. The idea here is to offer multiple doors of entry. You and I may not go to the same place if we want to seek help because we may not trust the same people. Some people may trust the police and call them when they're worried about something. Other people will talk to the community chief or to the, you know, a, a spiritual leader or religious leader or a, a youth worker. And some may go to the social services. The idea is exactly to do that, which means is to, to tell people that there are different doors they can knock on for help and that these doors are available to help them based on the trust relationship that they have with them. And then that there will be a multi-sectoral society response. So that if they have knocked on a spiritual leader door and this spiritual leader considers that this family needs help in economic integration, then that spiritual leader can go with the family and seek employment, for example, services. So the idea is to break down the silos, to create multiple doors of entry, break down the silos between the different sectors so that they can work together and also to help better assess risk. There is absolutely no need to involve the policing sector when there are no worries about the, let's say, immediate or you know violent acting out of a person if we are afraid of stigmatization. We can offer the services and only when a, a certain threshold is uh, achieved, then we may ask for help at a, at a different level. So really, the, the committee tries to, to strengthen that way the capacities of, of the communities to make them more resilient, but also to make them more aware of the importance of the role that they play in guaranteeing their own security and in how they want to 
call in, even for the help of, let's say, the, the, the policing sector, but also how to make the police and the policing sector accountable for their actions in the community. And communities can be equipped, empowered to make the services that exist in their neighborhood accountable for the actions that they that they have with the members of the community. Mm. I actually think this is such a great initiative because it's very proactive, uh, dealing with the causes that might make someone even vulnerable to reach that state rather than wait till the person is in such a vulnerable state and trying to stigmatize them and break down their ideologies. Uh, so I'm very hopeful. And I would like to end on a positive note. Are you hopeful in general? <laughs> I am very, I'm a very optimistic <laughs> I'm a very optimistic and hopeful person, and I really see that we 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 all want to work together in in one direction. So yes, I I am really very hopeful that uh, this is still a very um, let's say minimal phenomenon in Canada, and I am working, and I know that we are so many working hard to make it stay like that. And I I just want to like send one last message, if I may. Yes, of course. Anybody who's listening to us that this is not the domain of experts. Every single citizen in this country can do something and that it has to be like a whole society effort. Uh, it is really very important. And this is one myth to debunk. It's not experts who work on preventing violent radicalization. It's citizens who work on that. That's an amazing message. And I think we're safe to say that this is a really good and positive note to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Ghaida Hassan. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you, Anas. <laughs> Congratulations. You've made it quite far. And if you've made it this far in the episode, that means you like what you're listening to. Here are some ways you can support your new favorite podcast. You can follow the Facebook page and comment. I really want to hear what you guys have to say. And of course, share this with your friends. And let me know if you have something you want to share. And you can be a guest on one of my episodes. Or you can connect me to someone cool you know. Anyway, I just want to hear more from you. So please, uh, reach out.